Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Bitcoin ATM podcast. My name is Ted Stevenow, and we're here today with a guest, Jeremy Snyder, who is the CEO of a company called BTM Compliance LLC. And they are a full service compliance company focused on assisting operators with federal compliance for Bitcoin ATMs. Uh, welcome to the show, Jeremy. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me, Ted. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for, for, for joining us. This is a, this is a topic that you know, I, it could be hard to fit everything in one show, even uh, impossible, really. But do the best we can to touch on the, the general areas of it and, uh, and see if we can help people get a better understanding of compliance as it relates to, to Bitcoin ATM operations. So tell us a little bit about your company, BTM Compliance. BTM Compliance, we were founded in 2017. And uh, we started out of the necessity in order to assist the traditional ATM operators. So they didn't have like a true federal compliance program on the traditional ATMs. And uh, they decided, you know, to expand into the market of uh, cryptocurrency kiosks or Bitcoin ATMs. And, you know, frankly, they, they needed someone to help guide them. Um, so out of that necessity, BTM compliance was uh, was born. Okay, so now let's t tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you found your way into this into this space. In my younger years, uh, I was <laughs> I was in the military, and uh, beyond that, I was in law enforcement. I spent uh, over eleven years in in law enforcement, investigating narcotics and uh, and financial crimes. Okay, and you have a background in financial operations uh, for for financial companies in terms of compliance in general uh, as as well beyond your your law enforcement experience correct yeah and, and then beyond that yeah i also have some uh, fintech uh, software company experience and specific to the compliance and technologies that are that are used in uh, financial technology okay excellent all right so let's let's jump into the to compliance as relates to bitcoin atms so let's start with uh, kind of a general of a big picture look so when you look at the general category of compliance you know uh how, how do you define it what, what is what is how does this issue relate in, in you know top down to, to bitcoin atm operators so generally speaking there are four pillars of compliance there's a written aml policy that includes several different things it has the policies and procedures that um, are used in order to verify you know who a customer is the um, filing of necessary reports uh, creating maintaining records and um, even responding to uh, to like law enforcement requests okay and then beyond that there's, you know, the designation of a compliance officer, there's the education and the training aspects around compliance, and then there's regular independent uh, reviews of your AML program and operations. Okay. So those are the four general ones. When we look at compliance, I guess there's, there's two, there's, we can look at it from a federal level, and, and, and can you make a distinction between what states look at and what the, what the federal uh, agencies look at in terms of, of, of well, Bitcoin ATMs, in, you know, and in, in, uh, in terms of compliance and then in terms of consumer protection. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Uh, the majority of compliance mainly takes place on a federal level. So okay. states are more concerned with the consumer protections, um, protecting customers from being scammed and from bad businesses and just overall making sure that customers are going to get whatever they're purchasing. And so that's what the states are really focused on, okay. where the federal government is going to mm -hmm. be more interested in the actual 
regulations, how you're following those, and how you're stopping, you know, illicit activities um, that may be happening at uh, at one of your Bitcoin ATMs. Okay. Okay. So maybe a good way to jump into this and to, to look at some of the particular elements uh, that are involved. I just have some some kind of terms and agency questions and like who are these people and what There's are they a doing? Lot of them. <laughs> so I, I kind of con- we condensed it. Uh, but so let's start with very important agency uh, is called FinCEN. And can you tell us who is FinCEN and why are they important? So uh, FinCEN is actually a bureau of the U.S. Department of Treasury. And, you know, the long and short of it is they basically safeguard the financial systems from illicit use and they combat money laundering. And then beyond that, they're helping promote things like national security, um, you know, and collecting of intelligence and being able to disseminate that intelligence out to the appropriate law enforcement officials. Okay. Okay. And then another another element is what is the Bank Secrecy Act and how does that relate to Bitcoin ATMs? In general, FinCEN is exercising their regulatory functions under the Bank Secrecy Act okay. or the BSA. Okay. But when it comes to what is the Bank Secrecy Act, the Bank Secrecy Act is our nation's like first and the most comprehensive federal anti-money laundering and counterterrorism financing statute. So the BSA basically authorizes the Secretary of the Treasury to issue regulations that require banks, money service businesses, and other financial institutions to take uh, a whole number of precautions against financial crimes. That includes like the establishment of you know AML programs like we're talking about today. Sure. The filing of the reports, you know, that have been determined to have a real high degree of usefulness in criminal tax and like regulatory investigations, and and again in certain cases intelligence and counterterrorism matters. Um, so the Secretary of the Treasury has basically delegated to the Director of FinCEN the authority to implement, administer, and then ultimately enforce compliance with the BSA and all the other associated regulations. Okay. So under FinCEN, there are a variety of different types of financial businesses that can fall under their umbrella, right? Under their under their purview. Uh, one term that's used a lot and relates to Bitcoin ATMs is, is the, you hear just the letters MSB, which means money service business. Can you talk about what's a money service business and, and how does that relate? Yeah. So a money service business or an MSB is basically a business that offers and engages uh, in the transfer of, of money. So money transmission would be things like money orders, travel checks, check cashing, um, currency dealing, or even exchange. And this applies to Bitcoin ATMs because fiat or currency is, is being exchanged you know, or sold um, with virtual currency as being, you know, what is being provided to the customer or the consumer. Okay. This is, I, I think we mentioned earlier, Bank Secrecy Act and how they, they you know, the, the Treasury Department and uh, the authorization to be able to monitor this is, it's just changed so much over the years with the new technologies. And I, I can't imagine that <laughs> if that was your job to try to stay on top of that as an, as, as a, as a regulator, I can imagine that's, got to be a huge challenge. Um, so so another area that you hear all the time relative to Bitcoin ATMs is is the, or well, Bitcoin in general, uh, cryptocurrency in general, is AML KYC. Can you talk a little bit about that? Let's de- define those terms and, and how, do they, how do they relate in the Bitcoin ATM space? So money is laundered, you know, to conceal illegal activity. That includes crimes that, that generate the money itself, you know, like drug trafficking, for example, or weapons trafficking. Okay. And then 
that money laundering conceals the source of the illegal proceeds that the money can be used without detection of its criminal source. Okay. So in essence, the AML or the anti-money laundering is the actual processes and procedures of identifying and stopping money laundering. So okay. while KYC uh, you know, or know your customer is the actual process and procedure of identifying your customers, their suitability, and the risks that are involved with maintaining a business relationship with them, and whether or not you know you should allow one of these um, you know MSB services to you know to proceed with with the customer. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So then the last kind of big picture piece I want to just mix into the into into the bowl is is the idea of terrorist financing. Now you mentioned this before as, as a part of your other your uh, answering the other questions, but there's a there's an office called OFAC, right? Um, that's people in the know call it OFAC, but it means Office of Foreign Asset Control, and it relates this to the issue of terrorist financing. How can you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to Bitcoin ATM operation? Yeah. So I, terrorist financing is exact, exactly what it is. It's financing. It's the act of providing financial support to individual terrorists, terrorist groups or organizations. And most countries have implemented measures to counter terrorism and financing. And in the U.S., you know, obviously we have these things like we're talking about today with AML, but we also have OFAC or, you know, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And, you know, really... What's happening is they're administering and enforcing economic and trade sanctions in support of U.S. national security and foreign policy. Okay. So we would conduct screenings, you know, that are against watch lists that the Office of Foreign Asset Control maintains. Okay. And so I'm gonna, as we move on to the next the next section of this this discussion, um, I, I want to look back at just kind of what we've talked about already. I'm I'm looking for you know, in the, in the questions, how these individual elements relate to Bitcoin ATMs. But, but as you, as you've defined the issues, it, it, I guess it's important to maybe point out that it's not just Bitcoin or Bitcoin ATMs. These are, these are, uh, these are, uh, financial and regulatory bodies that apply across various industries, right? So as you, as you mentioned earlier, like a check cashing, a casino, anybody who's dealing with cash, if, if that's the, the the best common denominator, uh, but is it probably more than that? More than just cash, um, you know, or, or transacting money, transferring money has to be con- has to be aware of and consider these factors. Correct? Yeah, I mean, financial institutions is is very broad. It okay. also includes banks. Um, you know, I, you can go pick up a money order at a local you know post office, and they're going to have you know some of the same things are going to be required of them to provide you know reporting of you know purchases of, of some of these these money orders and, and whatnot okay so yeah it's it is it's there's a lot to unpack and and obviously it applies you know very broadly okay that's excellent i i guess i what, what seems to be comforting in some sense is that it's it's a relatively common thing for businesses to have to consider these these factors as they operate um, it's not necessarily something that's just unique or new to someone who's who's in the bitcoin atm space um, so okay a lot of individual factors at play and so what I want to transition to is how how an operator can can get a handle on all this stuff. And so so as your business helps people, uh, you've basically created a package uh, that that uh, seeks to manage all these bring all these elements together and, and create a system to manage to manage operations. So 
let's talk about that that package and and the and the, uh, the the system that you're using. Um, and uh, the first thing that that really is it the, the start of the gets the ball rolling. It seems is this registration with FinCEN. So if someone is a Bitcoin ATM wants to be a Bitcoin ATM operator. You start with this registration with FinCEN. Can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So registration with FinCEN is is pretty simple. Um, it's done online. We actually assist operators with completing an application, and then we electronically submit it on the operator's behalf. And the application is made up of several pages. It collects up, you know, personal information on the individual, um, you know, or the owners, and okay. uh, the business information of the legal entity that's going to be registering. And then beyond that. FinCEN then reviews, um, you know, the application, validates the information, and then will issue out a registration number. And uh, they do all of that typically in about one to two, you know, uh, business weeks. Wow. Okay, that's great. Okay. Um, is there a, is there an application fee or is that just something that, like getting a tax ID number, you just fill out the paperwork and send that in? I mean, obviously, there's professional fees, but which would be different. But I mean, just as a, as a registration, is, is, a, is there a cost to that? Yeah. So technically an operator could go out and and apply on their own and there there are no fees but in all essence the application process you know most people would look at an application and go wow that's a lot of information there's a lot of things that may or may not apply to them that they may or may not have to fill out um, we already understand the landscape of that application and exactly what applies to a money services business specific to the bitcoin atm industry and how to apply for that. Um, so we actually will will help that uh, operator in part of our package service, and we'll go through, collect their information, submit that application, and then obviously get that registration number in return. Yeah, oh, indeed, I can imagine that. I mean, some I've, I've so literally applying for a tax ID number can be there can be questions that come up, and you say, "Well, what am I doing here? Am I doing this correctly?" And you hate to lay foundation stones that. Are in the wrong place <laughs> so so no help is a good idea so all right so then the next element of it beyond the registration with fincen is the drafting of a custom aml program let's talk about that a little bit yeah so btm compliance we draft a custom aml program for the operator based on their business and their specific needs it's it's very detailed um, it's a written document which is which is fed, federally required um, and it covers a lot of things, you know, um, the policies, uh, the activities, the training, and whatnot. And what makes them custom is that they're, they're, they, they end up being a little bit different depending on the kind of business? Um, so, yeah, they, they can be, you know, how the business is actually operating. Obviously, you can choose to do some things. You can, uh, obviously, there are regulations that okay. you're required to follow. Um, and some people decide to become more strict. So there are things that custom, if a operator would like to go ahead and enhance, you know, or make something uh, more strict than, than what the regulation is, then obviously we'll be able to help with that. Okay, excellent, okay. Um, well, let's talk about another element of, the, of, of, the, of a compliance program is creating policies and this definitely would be would would feel custom based on the business uh, policies to monitor day to day activity. Can you talk a little bit about about how that that might be conceived? Yeah, so that includes you know all the policies around uh, KYC, know your customer, um, monitoring the transactions, conducting the screenings, the reporting that's required, um, record retention. I mean, there is there is a lot we could probably 
sit and unpack this one for for probably two or three hours. Uh, there's there's a lot of different scenarios that, that go through um, in actually developing a lot of the policies, but ultimately the monitoring of the day to day activity are the ones that I've just mentioned, which are you know the KYC, the the transactions, the screenings, and the reporting, and then obviously the retention long term. Okay, so part of the process is that you. You, you've talked to me before about about you you approach this from a risk management perspective. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that means. But related to that, you as a person, a company sets out their policies. One of the things they have to do is set the parameters for collecting and documenting information from customers. You know, talk a little bit about that. How how could the parameters differ, or why would they differ, and and how would a company go about you know thinking about how they wanted to to, to set up their operation relative to these parameters. Yeah, so we help operators with that based on the laws and the regulations, but then also, like you mentioned, the risk that's based on the on the transactions. Okay. So we have parameters or tiers that have um, KYC data collection um, and the necessary reporting that's associated to to those values and the risk that those present to a business. Um, you know, some people are, you know, maybe in a, in a higher risk, you know, geographical area, um, you know, or maybe just an individual who's operating a business is, uh, is more, um, risk adverse and wants to take a, a stronger stance against, you know, certain things. So, um, those tiers obviously can be changed, uh, to collect data, you know, more stringently, okay. um, you know, or, or you know, even shorten and say, hey, I'm not going to allow transactions of a certain value to occur. Okay, so, but can you give some examples of what's the kind of thing, what kind of things do people collect when they're trying to trying to do a good job of, of, of managing KYC? Yeah, so you could collect data, you know, for every single transaction on an individual, um, so you know, so would, would knowing, data, data knowing like, exactly who somebody would be. Data would be like a, a state ID or a social security number or what you're referring to are, are individual facts about the, the customer that you're interacting with. Yeah, correct. So we could collect up a, a government ID, you know, for, for all transactions, no matter if they're, you know, $1 and above, you know, or we could say, hey, we're going to collect up, you know, the identification starting at, uh, you know, $1,000 and, and above uh, based off of, you know, the regulations and, and reporting. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Another element of this is, is other, there are other screenings and, and they're all intended to try to identify that, you know, that there's no, nothing nefarious happening and that people are, are, are good actors in the space. So let's talk about, um, there's, there, the screenings, there's OFAC, PEP, SDN. I mean, can you talk about, define some of those and, and describe what, 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 what their purpose is for? Yeah, so, so we did talk a little bit about um, OFAC, or the Office of Foreign Asset Control. Right. Um, PEP, that's uh, Politically Exposed Persons, and SDN, um, those are going to be specially designated nationals. But, but basically, these are screenings that are conducted against databases, uh, which are essentially watch lists, which lists out all the sanctions, politically exposed persons, and those specially designated nationals or blocked persons, okay. um, which may be prohibited from, from certain activities based off of, you know, uh, sanctions that have been applied. And those sanctions can be applied against individual people, 
um, businesses that that may be acting on behalf of those individuals, and then even whole geographical areas um, that are not allowed to do things. And so those would be more like uh, an economic or a trade sanction. Okay, excellent. Okay, so when these screenings occur, um, let's say there's a, a an identification or the, a, a, on a, on a variety of levels, if there was. A, a flag that, that was raised, right? So you say, all right, here's somebody that we've got a suspicious activity. What What is the process for for reporting and creating plans for, for reporting when people see things that need to be reported? Yeah, so screenings are handled a little bit differently. Obviously, if we received a flag, um, you know, on one of the federal screenings, then we're going to go through a special reporting process where we're notifying, let's say, OFAC, of a potential flag hit on an individual, confirming that and then going through a whole different process. But beyond that, there are reports that are that are required to be submitted, and um, I can talk about those. So there's two main two main reports. The first is a SAR or a suspicious activity report. Okay. It's exactly what it sounds like. It, it's it's required anytime that there's a suspicious transaction that has occurred. Um, specifically in an amount that's greater than than two thousand dollars. So, in order for that, you know, an act or a transaction to be considered like suspicious, the transaction has to cause um, the operator or the MSB as a whole to know or reasonably suspect that the transaction or even a pattern of transactions um, involves funds that are derived from things like illegal activity, um, transactions that are designed to evade requirements of the Bank Secrecy Act, the BSA. Okay. Um, or even transactions that serve just no business or no apparent lawful purpose. Um, you know, so based off of those, um, you know, we would file one of these SAR reports. And, and they're filed electronically, uh, and they have to be filled out within 30 days of becoming aware of the suspicious transaction. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, that one's not too bad. Uh, the second is a CTR, or a currency transaction report. It's required to be filled out on transactions that involve more than ten thousand dollars in either cash in or cash out um, on any one day or on behalf of uh, a person and so this also includes uh, aggregation Um, so that means where multiple transactions are conducted Mm -hmm. um, within a 24-hour time period those have to be treated as as a single transaction for the ctr reporting purposes and those two are also electronically filed, um, and we file those within 15 days of those transactions. Okay, so I'm imagining an operation that is that is engaged in this process. One other part of it certainly is teaching the employees and everybody involved about all the rules and what they need to look for. And so, something that you you work with and helping people is training. And I guess there's a frequency that needs to occur so as people stay updated, or they can maybe they can set that themselves. You talk a little bit about the training and 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 the the frequency that, that it needs to, to happen. Uh, yeah. So there is, there's a lot to compliance. Um, and obviously ongoing training is required by law. Okay. Regulations change um, the way that illicit actors or bad actors in the space, um, you know, try to conduct illegal activity. Those things change. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're getting smarter, but they get better about doing things. And then obviously we have to change some of the ways that we do things. Okay. Um, so based off of those facts of laws, rules, regulations, and the way that criminal activity changes, 
Um, we have to provide ongoing training for that. So we provide ongoing training to our operators. Um, we do this quarterly um, and we, it's all done on compliance um, and we assist in maintaining the records of all of this training. So when was the training? What was the training on? Um, was there a test? Did they pass, you know, assigned log of the training? So we go through and, and we actually, you know, assist with making sure that, that the training is very comprehensive and that people are also, just like ourselves, progressively learning as compliance professionals. Okay. So and when and when you when you look at an organization and training doesn't just apply to the management, right? It's 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 something that even in like a store that has a Bitcoin ATM in it, you'd even want to provide training for line employees, make sure that the people that are there could, who are observing people engage the machine were aware of some of these issues, correct? Yeah, so if those were employees of the actual MSB, we would. Otherwise, we would probably, you know, assist the operator um, and advise them that, you know, if it's a store and it doesn't belong to them and it's a, a leased space, yeah, it we would be, you know, very smart of them to go through and also educate the other individuals, you know, where the geographical placement of the machine is. Sure. So that way they can also assist in identifying things, you know, that might be illicit activity or even go as far as just a great customer experience. Right. Sometimes, you know, the technology is a little bit difficult or, you know, there's there's a barrier to entry here. Um, you know, with with the knowledge of how do I go and complete a transaction? How awesome would it be to to turn around to somebody like a clerk that's there who knows how the machine works and can also identify that? But in addition, assist an operator by saying, "Hey, there's some there's some funky stuff going on over here at your machine. You need to look at this. It occurred around this time, and an individual looked like this." Okay. That gives uh, that gives the operator something. <laughs> a guy's wearing a mask and he's trying to use the machine or something like that, right? <laughs> Absolutely great. That that's a great example. <laughs> it's something obvious, but you'd only it'd only be obvious if you were were told to kind of to look for it. So okay, so another review. It's a the, separate from training. Um, there are annual reviews that occur. So you you establish the initial compliance program with all these elements in place, and then time goes by. Then then in the future, part part of the process are reviews. Can you can you talk a little bit about the independent review? Yeah. So FinCent actually requires that these are done annually. Okay. Um, basically, it's a review of the of the money services business and their AML program. Um, to monitor the adequacy of their program. It, it helps identify things like deficiencies that, that need to be addressed um, and or the identification of things that need to be updated or even added. Uh, just like we were talking about regulations change, um, you know, processes, you know, need to be changed in order to maybe include or exclude things. Um, so these annual independent reviews they're an opportunity to identify those things and enhance and, and ensure the adequacy of their AML program and their operations as a whole. Okay. Um, other other assessments, there's one called the <clears throat> standard risk assessment. Are you talking about that? Yeah, so we did talk about risk and, you know, everything with AML is all risk-based. Our program is, is written based off of risk. Um, and like like any business, there are risks. They should be known and they should be planned for. 
Um, so that way you know how to mitigate those. So each money services business, you know, needs to identify and assess annually um, the money laundering risk that may be associated with its, uh, you know, products that are being sold or the services, um, the customers that are that are coming into the machines, and then. Also, the geographical location. There are certain locations that you know um, have more of a money laundering and criminal um, presence, and uh, those geographical locations, you know, need to be need to be uh, identified, and the risk needs to be you know, addressed. Okay. Uh, another thing that your company helps operators with is something called ex- exchange applications. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what what that means and and why that's important? Yeah. So BTM compliance as a whole, we, we try to be that full service organization for our operators. And um, this is just basically our ability to assist an operator with applying for an institutional or a business account with an exchange like Kraken or Gemini. Um, obviously, if you've been into crypto and you've made purchases personally, you have a personal account. Um, but once one of these exchanges starts to see that you're making large purchases of uh, cryptocurrency in order to replenish what you'd be selling for a business, they're going to quickly identify that you're a business and, and you really need to have an institutional or business account with them. Um, and as you can imagine, they're going to have a lot of questions around compliance and how you conduct things. Um, and those applications for the layperson, they, they might be a little bit more complicated. Um, you know, so we do put ourselves out there and, and offer the assistance, you know, for a fee, obviously, to help ensure that those applications get completed and uh, are submitted correctly. Okay, excellent. Um, another another issue that, that comes up that you hear uh, that kind of a kind of a buzzword, I guess, in this space, or something called an IRS Title Thirty One exam. Um, can you talk about what what an IRS Thirty One Title excuse me IRS Title Thirty One exam would be, and you know, how how does that happen, and what, what what is the purpose of those exams, and and how how do you help people uh, uh, deal with that reality? Yeah, so I I wouldn't say that there's so much of an issue as it's just part of doing business. Indeed. So um, an IRS Title 31 examination is exactly that. It's an examination that's being conducted by the IRS where they're examining um, the money service business and how they're following the regulations in reference to AML. Okay. And um, they collect up just an immense amount of documentation about your operations and um, also evidence of how you have been doing things. Um, And then they take all of that, the documentation and the evidence of a specific time period, and then they review it and they assess how you're doing. And then obviously, if they find things that they have questions on, they're going to bring those to you. Um, If they find things that that are obvious deficiencies, then they ask you and give you a time period to address those and then, you know, send back that to them. Um, they assess, you know, the individual operator and their knowledge on compliance. Uh, they look at, you know, the training logs to see what you have been trained on. Okay. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a lot to it, as as you can imagine. Um, but you know, it's not if you get an IRS Title Thirty One examination; it's when you get one. Okay. Um, in my professional opinion, it, it appears that the IRS is, is doing examinations on MSBs on about every two years. Okay. I mean, you know, when I, you and I talked about this in, earlier and I, I was thinking, you know, one of, one of the upsides is that it does, it, it, like, the, like the annual review, um, 
it does tie everything together. I mean, and these these examinations are going to going to talk about the things that matter and the, the things that they're checking. It's some in some sense helpful to know you know what's important relative to these examinations because that's helping you stay on track from a certain perspective. Um, okay, so so let's let's look at um, another another thing that comes up is is this the topic of what are called no opinion letters. Can you talk about how those those apply to Bitcoin ATM operators and what what they mean? Yeah, sure. I could probably talk about money transmitter licensing first because that's that's what they actually, oh. it's actually a oh. result of one of those. So money transmitter licenses are are the state you know consumer protections um that happen and basically some some states have have an opinion on virtual currency and they say hey you are a money transmitter and so what they do is they require the money services business to get a money transmitter license um and that license includes the application process with their application fees um a background investigation on on you know all of the the owners of the business, uh, fingerprints, and typically a surety bond. And, and again, it's all for consumer protection. So this just ensures that whatever you're buying or purchasing as a service from that money transmitter, that you're going to be able to get it. And if you had a, a complaint against that business, then obviously they could go back to the state, see that you were a legitimate business, see that there's a surety bond that they could then, you know, assess against. And then obviously that whoever is the issuing of the bond would then come after that business. Okay. So how do, and how does the no opinion, no opinion letter re- relate? Yeah. So now the no opinion letter relates to the states that do not require okay. um, a money transmitter license or do not view virtual currency as meeting their requirements. So this is simply a letter to the, you know, respective states, Department of Finance, for example, um, about the money services business operations and um, the state's opinion of whether or not that MSB needs to have that money transmitter license or not. Um, so we assist by helping operators, you know, get this letter okay. and have them send it off. And then in return, the state then sends back and, and says that they don't have an opinion on virtual currency or that there's no action that's required on, on their part. This helps operators because when they go through, let's say, a Title 31 um, or they're going through their independent review and an auditor you know, or another compliance professional starts to, starts to look at this and says, you know, are you required to have one? No, I'm not. Well, how do you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I already went and I sent this professional letter and the state sent me a response back that says that I'm not. It also assists the operators in the long term. Um, you know, should that change? Should the opinion of the state change? Now the state has has a record and a file, you know, for that business operating within that state. Um, and then when they do change, now they have, you know, a, a place that they can go in order to reach out connect with with those operators and explain to them, hey, my opinions changed and now you're going to need to apply for one of those. And then if there are any, you know, benefits to, you know, having already identified yourself, they may give those. So, for example, in the state of Florida, recently they changed their opinion um, and they are now requiring a money transmitter license effective January 1. Um, But they have told all the operators, as long the existing operators, 
as long as you have already applied by December 31st, then they're going to allow you to continue to operate um, where a new startup or someone who didn't do this or doesn't know about the regulation, they're obviously either A, at risk or B, they're going to have to stop their operations on January 1. Okay. Okay. All right. So all the things we've talked about, um, I, th- I think, uh, you know, as a, as a new operator, you go, whoa, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed, you know, thinking about all of it. One, one thing I, I think that's, that's fascinating is that, is that you've been able to sew all this together and make a cohesive program so people can, can go through kind of a baby steps process to, to, to lay the foundation and, and really cover the, the bases they need to cover. So let's talk about those baby steps. I mean, how do you take an, an, a brand new operator or someone who's considering, you know, they got a current business, they're going to add Bitcoin ATMs to their operation, or they're going to start a, a business that just does Bitcoin ATM operations, how, you know, lit- literally from a time standpoint. So it's like the first week, first day, what did you, know, you that first morning you look at it, what, what is, how do you, what's the process and how do you, how do you begin to, to lay the foundation to make sure everything's where it needs to be? Yeah. So we do that. We actually have this timeline. Um, and what we do is, is we do this in order to help remove some of that stress, you know, from the operators and help them get underway and then get started smoothly, um, you know, with these with these machines. And so week one, typically, you know, you're you're calling into us and, and you're onboarding um, into our we use a 24 um, seven private uh, Slack channel in order to, you know, facilitate our communications privately with the operator. Uh, we complete a, a very simple business questionnaire, which gives us enough information in order to help us with like the application process with Vincent. Um, we execute a service agreement. Uh, the operator's receiving an initial invoice from us. They're, they're completing the payment. And then ultimately, at the end of that, that first week, if everything has gone well, then we're submitting um, their application to FinCEN to become a registered MSB. The next week, you start to look at documents and, and drafting something for that business based based on some of what you learned in the first week. Can you talk, talk a little bit about, about how you do that or that process? Week two, we're going through, you know, anti-money laundering or AML program. We're drafting and, and preparing that. And, and really all we're, we're waiting for is that MSB registration return from FinCEN, which takes about a week to two in order for them to get back. But in that time, we're going through and we're having an understanding intimately of what those operations are going to look like for that operator and ensuring that the program that is being drafted, you know, accommodates all of that okay. in the fashions that, that it needs to be done with. Okay. So then you come to, to week three. So here's where you start doing training. I mean, it's, I mean, this is where you really, you start applying basically some of the elements you've, you begin, you've begun to, to assemble. So, so week three, you you, you start training with the operators. Um, talk a little bit about what that initial training looks like. Yeah. So when you think logically from the stuff that you've done in week one and then week two, it's really built you up in, into what we start with training in, in week three. So that initial operator compliance training and the completion, you know, of any additional business specific items like those MTLs, um, you know, or the drafting of a, of a no opinion letter, maybe a risk assessment, the exchange application assistance, things like that. So we go through and, and, and we help them, um, you know, really tie all the, the last pieces together in order to ensure that they're that they're prepared for the operations and that they understand what is going to be required of them as they operationally go live. Okay, what does training look like? Do you have like a is it there's a, are there printed materials or is it mainly online or what? What's the what is the you know how does how does somebody get that training? 
Yeah. So there's there's a few different places. Um, obviously, in the AML program itself, it does specify, you know, what is the new, uh, you know, hire or the initial compliance training. Um, some of that training comes directly from from FinCent. Uh, some of it comes from FATF. So there's there's a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, training pieces or modules that, that are pulled in. But we also have, you know, uh, training content that we have. And then there's also just our expertise of being able to, to get on things like a Zoom call um, and then actually functionally walk an operator through, you know, a, a mock-up of what that operation and what that, like, transaction monitoring would look like and, and how to, you know, apply different scenarios against that. Okay, excellent. So now I'm, I'll just do a fourth week. So uh, so you so you've gone through the the steps we've mentioned so far, and I, now now where I, my notes say that um, you look at dashboard access for the compliance team. So I, and I think with that, if I understand that properly, it's basically you're making sure that your team has the ability to interact with the business to the degree that you you need to to be able to, to carry out your your you know your your part of the of the uh, compliance. Program. So, let's talk about a little about the dashboard access and what that means. Yeah. So, the dashboard access is, is really just the software that's loaded at these machines. Okay. Um, being able to see the transactions that happen at the machines, the value, the pictures that are being taken, the ID that's collected, um, the wallet, whether it's scanned or manually entered. You know, that's what that dashboard is. The dashboard is really like the 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 source or the the source records, um, you know, for all of the transactions or the ledger of exactly what is happening. Okay, okay. I mean, I could do a huge digression here um, because it seems to me that is critical. The dashboard that, and I imagine when you run into business, businesses because it, and they're and they have a dashboards are have, they have a relationship to the manufacturer, right? So, so let's say if I have two different manufacturers for the machines that I have, you know, let's say somebody's got 20 machines in operation, 10 are from one manufacturer, 10 are from another. I mean, it could just be challenging to, um, it's funny, sometimes we look at the, just where people are picking up machines. Sometimes people buy an old, like a used machine, go to eBay and try to buy a Bitcoin ATM machine and you see them out there and and knowing what I know about dashboards, I think, oh man, that sounds like a terrible idea just because, or it could be really complicated because you really want a dashboard system that can look at I mean, ideally, all the machines that you have. Well, you talk about that. How would you approach that? Just based on your kind of your experience looking back in operations, you know, does it seem reasonable to try to operate with several or is it better with there's one or what's what's your what's been your experience there? That's a really great question. I think it also goes back to the personal opinion of the operator. Um, you know, their training and experience and also the flexibility of wanting to operate, you know, out of more than one dashboard, let's say if you're operating more than one, um, you know, software, you know, at multiple types of machines. So those things obviously do come in, come into play. And I would tell you that, you know, as you're out there and, and you're selecting, you know, your manufacturer, you know, you definitely heavily want to look at the software that's being loaded at that. That software is something that you're going to be in and working out of day in, day out. You want it to be user friendly. Um, you want to, you know, have a great understanding of what the support aspect is going to be on the back end. You know, is the manufacturer also the developer of the software? 
hey, that, that sounds great. That means to me that I can come to you with a hardware issue, but I can also come with a software issue, um, you know, versus, you know, if someone has a third party that has any third party components or even third party software, then that means you're obviously dealing with a third party and whatever their process is in order to get assistance. Sure. I, I, um, I, those would be the things that I would tell you. Yeah, I was thinking of when I when I one of the features in the of, of the Chainbytes machines because this is Chain Chainbytes sponsored this pod the podcast. Um, right. Well, the, the 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 software it's almost like a well I mean this is my analogy not theirs but it's just like a like the Teslas that they that they up, update overnight. I mean the the ah, the ability that the software that they use to be able to 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 change and make sure it's working properly and, and get really update is amazing and the the other thing that I think is is super important when I think of what you're you know your your part of the business with then when you when I think about compliance one of the features is that is that from a central location you can manage all the machines so if you wanted to change uh you know you want to collect more information about a certain level of transaction you can just set that you can adjust that setting in the one in, in the dashboard system and it'll apply across the various machines um, seems to be uh, just would be very nice to have that you know, the, to be consistent and and uh, just to make it easier than trying to you know I couldn't imagine just oh I got to go visit the machine here and just customize the software on the one location to make sure that it's up to speed with everything we're doing so um, yeah so it seems to me like a solid dashboard system would would be important another another thing I want to ask you about Jeremy is record keeping so when you look at record keeping what are the typical standards like how long does does information need to be kept and what you know what would you say about security relative to that information uh just for from an operation standpoint yeah so it's pretty clear the regulations say that you know you're supposed to maintain all your records for five years so all of these transactions the documentation the reporting all that stuff needs to be needs to be maintained for for five years and then expanding on, on what you're saying about the software, it's it's paramount. It's critical that that software help you with that. Um, you know, so the security of that of that software, making sure that you know only you have access or the user roles. So you know, one of the things that's different is the operators obviously have their login and, and they're an administrator. They have to be able to provide you know roles to let's say the compliance officer that only allows them to see and do the things that are applicable you know to their job within that software. So those things are are you know are pretty important. And software, not all software is equally made. Right. So that means that you know the software that that you that you choose or that comes with your your manufactured cryptocurrency kiosk it may or may not have some of those those features that that you want so those are the things that you may want to look at um you know and having the ability to to store additional things with it is pretty important okay excellent i'm fascinated by the fact that you're able to provide a system to condense it all together to make it manageable um like that would as an operator i mean that would mean a lot to me because just for the peace of mind um because it'd be, I can imagine it being difficult with all the other elements in terms of marketing the machines and customer service and all that you had to do to try to make sure you understand all of these elements. I really think it's wise to to have a to have a, a guide, right? To have someone who can really uh, uh, show the way and and help you, you know, consider the things that are important. So, based on our whole discussion today, any any other parting words of wisdom or best practices or things you'd say that to, that to people to help them square this stuff away? Don't guess. Yeah. Don't don't guess at compliance. Consult with a professional on compliance or partner with an organization like mine. 
um, that's going to be able to help and, and like you said, guide you. Uh, you know, we're we're here to to partner with you, to be in the huddle. You know, as you have questions, to to be available. You know, um, via chat, uh, via phone or Zoom, and and have a discussion in real time about you know a transaction or an issue or an activity that's that's happening. Maybe a new regulation. That's where you're really going to go ahead and and you know find find the value out of an organization like mine. So yeah, best thing, don't guess. Right. Find somebody who, who can help advise you. Okay, excellent, excellent. So, hey, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, through our website. So, through our website, you can go out to www.btmcompliance.com. Um, on our webpage, you can go ahead and you can actually submit your information, request uh, a consultation phone call with us. Uh, you may even get that consultation with me. All right. Again, man, I really I really appreciate you taking the time today. And I, and I hope you get some, some people to reach out to you because I'm, I'm sure people need the help. Um, so, all right. Well, hey, for, and for just some general show housekeeping, if you have any questions about the podcast or suggested topics or guests or if you want to be a guest and you got something you can help contribute to our to our conversations i would love to hear from you uh our, the best way to reach us is at info at chainbytes.com and chainbytes is spelled c-h-a-i-n-b-y-t-e-s so info at chainbytes.com and uh, we'd love to hear from you so everybody thank you very much for listening thank you again jeremy and we'll see you all next time take care